You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospé and Paul Gamble. It is the day before Reversapalooza. You will not be hearing this until after Reversapalooza, but we're so excited. We've been working on this event for months and it's going to be a great time. If you like this podcast, if you love reversing climate change, the best thing you could do to help us would be to write us a good review on iTunes or where Google Play, Google Play, Stitcher. Yeah. yeah. On your podcast app, if you could rate us, write us a good review, that would be the, the best thing you could do to help the project along. So Christoph, why don't you reintroduce your old mentor, current mentor. With pleasure. And just as we're speaking to our audience, which we love so much, if you have a great idea for our podcast, you can email us at hello at nori.com and we will respond. Not all of our ideas are always the greatest, so you probably couldn't do much worse sometimes. A lot of good ideas, a lot of good ones. Hopefully, we'll float around this table. It's wonderful for the second time to have Klaus Lackner on the podcast. Klaus is the director of the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions at Arizona State University, as well as a professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and Built Environment, and really one of the first people to talk about removing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at industrial scale. And so we're very glad to have Klaus back. We're going to save you the trouble of listening to Klaus's story and just link the first episode in these notes. And I think we want to jump right into it, Ross. So I'm going to pass it back to you because Klaus ended up reading a paper that you really quarterbacked. What is this paper? What is that about? And to take us into it. Uh, this is my life for a while, the white paper for blockchain projects that are starting. It's very common to use it to document both the go-to-market strategy, the general overview of what conceptual problems the project solves, technically how it works, where we're going. And it's a little bit of a kitchen sink document sometimes. So everything that's formal, all the detail that maybe the more casual uh, appreciator of the project might not want, that's often found in, in the white paper. So we've been focusing quite hard on that and people who attended Reversapalooza were able to read the first official draft. So it's not fully public yet, but Klaus was kind enough to read it and give us some notes. Yeah, Klaus, um, a little nervous, but you're not, you're not going to be too harsh on us, are you? No, actually not. I thought it read very well. There was lots of good stuff in there, lots of stuff to sink your teeth in and think about. It also not surprisingly, raises questions where I say, I'm not really quite sure I understand yet how this model works. Or in some cases, I said, oh, it, it really now makes it clear, but that then raises other questions. So I found it it's quite coherent, and you can really tell that you have come a long ways. And this is not just a little idea anymore. There are bits and pieces coming together, and it's detail, and that, that's what I like about it. What I really like, and that's probably because it's also lining up with my own prejudices, is that you really are going to break the model of the carbon offset where you say, here is a counterfactual and I'm going to do better than that and I want to be paid for the difference. And then you end up in all these additionality arguments. Is that counterfactual real or is it not real? You mean like if I build a, a wind plant instead of a coal-fired power plant, I say? Right. Would you really have built that coal-fired power plant or maybe you would have built a slightly more efficient one? I think a lot of your creativity 
now ended up in pushing the baseline up because what you wow. get paid for is the difference between that counterfactual and what you really did, right? And so maybe it's easier to put the counterfactual at a higher level than getting the new idea to a lower level in CO2 emissions. So there's a lot of creativity which goes, in my view, in the wrong things. And I think what you are doing is saying what we count, what we will pay you for, what this carbon certificate is for, is for actual removal. So you have to show me the carbon that has been put away. And I think that will ultimately greatly simplify things. You think the, a market for removing carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas equivalents is actually, the incentives are better than a market for mitigation because then people end up in these weird additionality circuits and trying to figure out how to game it a little bit. Yes. And I think, keep in mind too, look at the long-term goal. In the short term, that offset may help you. But in the long term, you have to balance the carbon budget. Nobody has anything to sell. Right? The counterfactual doesn't matter anymore. You have to be zero. Right? And therefore, you have to put carbon away. And I think at the end of the day, you have to end up where everything happens right at the point where the carbon comes out of the ground. And what I think if you ever should be allowed to pull carbon out of the ground, you have to show at that moment a certificate of carbon removal, which balances it out. So that is actually the big control box, if you think about it. We are putting excess carbon into the environment, and we need to take it back out because that's what we need to balance. And so carbon removal, in my view, is the only thing which actually can do it. So I was, of course, really pleased to see that that's what you did. You're like, finally, someone's making this work for carbon removal people out there. They can monetize it. They can get paid. Right. Now, there are still a lot of open questions. I mean, who's actually your customer? Who is willing to pay for it? Why are they willing to pay for it? Are they stuck in some compliance market which actually forces them to do it? Are you talking to volunteers? And all of that is still open, but I don't think you really know either. That's why you're starting, right? <laughs> yeah, we've been, we've been actually talking about this quite a lot. Paul, do you want to do your unveiling of that or you're talking about it? <laughs> just... We think of it in terms of a, a roadmap and we detail this in the white paper. We talk about it different phases that we want to go through. So right now, the markets are very used to large buyers, usually corporations. And in the compliance markets, they're usually in the energy or transportation or one of those manufacturing sectors and that sort of thing. And they're in the compliance markets, they're buying because they have to. In the voluntary markets, they're buying because their shareholders, their customers are demanding it. They want to be doing the right thing for the PR of it. Our go-to-market strategy to begin with is to launch with something that is as familiar to the existing ecosystem as possible so that the participants can recognize it and understand very clearly what our other differences are, what the other value propositions are that we make. But that's not going to be the general market that helps us scale this in some way that actually makes some measurable difference in removing enough carbon dioxide to reverse climate change. So we see this transitioning over a period of time. In the end, our future goal is that we want buyers to be very small microtransactions that are happening in a, in a high volume. These things might be embedded in everyday activities in your life, whether that might be you pull up to the gas pump in your car and you're offered the ability to negate the emissions that are coming out from the gas that you purchase. But there are other ways that it can be done because that example isn't actually doing any net removal. That's just keeping things net neutral to what's in the atmosphere. 
So there are other ways where things can be incorporated into small micro purchases, in-app purchases and mobile games or finding partnerships with different suppliers like taxis or through some sort of e-commerce shipping, building this in so that in the end, we want carbon removal to be a background activity. It's a thing that people don't even think about. It just happens automatically and it's happening and growing at a scale that's actually sustainable because now we're talking about much, much larger populations of people participating. Like if you think about it, if we were to go after and do our business development for like the Fortune 500 companies, and those are the companies we wanted to target. Well, how many companies are there? There are only 500 and they can only buy so much. They're only offsetting so many tons of CO2 from their supply chain. So we have to move beyond that. And that's the eventual vision to get there. But that's a ways away. We have to figure out how to make this work for the current buyers that are in place right now. Yeah, the average person doesn't want to buy offsets. That's complicated. And also, I would never buy one. in Paul, you wouldn't ever either. No, definitely not. Yeah. Even before I knew about it, I, do I have any idea that this actually works or not? Like, where's my money going to? And there's also just that base level free rider problem, which I'm not sure Nori really deals with the free rider problem, except in cases where like if you were in a taxi and it said, hey, McDonald's is willing to pay for to negate your carbon from this taxi ride. Are you okay with that? They get the ad benefit and the PR benefit and then it doesn't cost the consumer so, anything. So they send you an ad to watch and in right. return, they took a little carbon away on your behalf. Yeah, yeah, or not. Maybe they just said McDonald's logo is willing to do this on your behalf or whatever company. Maybe that's the way to go. Because having it be purely consumer driven and appealing to their, do I want to pay extra to do this? I'm not sure that's the best way to actually end up selling those. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Making this so easy that you're literally not even doing anything for it. It's almost more B2B and business to business than business to consumer. Yeah. In some ways. But that, that then raises the question for me, which is exactly the market you are going to be in. Yeah. And if I read your white paper, I think the important market to be in and where there are a lot of gaps today and where you haven't quite filled it yet either. At least I don't see it in the in the white paper yet is somebody has to verify these things and has to make sure that that certificate of carbon removal which comes out there is trustworthy and somehow that has to be done and i i like your idea that you make it transparent but it has to be more than that i think you have to go method by method example by example and actually work it out and have detailed rules, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And in the end, you may very well be the one who sets the standards, but it needs to be done, right? And it, it's still a little vague. And that's still being worked out. And we're taking this one methodology at a time. And that's one of the big reasons that we're hosting this conference is to bring together the leading experts in the field on this so that we can get feedback on, are these rules that we're proposing workable? And we're publishing these methodologies on our GitHub repo so that anyone can come in and comment on them and give feedback on them. We can continue to iterate upon them and improve them as we learn more from real life practice, as technology improves and so on. These are sort of two separate discussions looking at what is the challenge of verification, which is absolutely our primary challenge. And then how do we go about doing business development to ensure that there are participants in this marketplace? And that sort of like long ranging vision is definitely hand waving based on the assumption that we've already figured out the verification challenge, which is the primary thing. If we don't do that, then there is no business. So that is our primary focus. Of course, we're looking methodology by methodology, but the kind of common commonalities is that there's a baseline and then there's what happened after the baseline and you measure the difference. 
And yes and no. There are examples which are like this. I realize from reading your white paper that the first things you, you aim for are the soil carbon growing trees, this kind of stuff. And there you, clearly you have a baseline. You had a certain amount of carbon in that forest last year, and now you have more. And that's what you get paid for. I get that. But think of Sleipner, right? They are injecting CO2 into an aquifer, deep saline aquifer. In that case, do you really care about the baseline? You may not even be able to measure it very well, but you measure very exactly what's going in. You may be able to stipulate in that case that that carbon is gone for a very, very long time and you have some fairly simple methods of checking that it, you're not grossly wrong. You don't really have a good way of ever measuring that baseline. So there are cases where it's one way or the other, but I would really encourage you not only to have these particular methodologies, but to begin with sort of have sort of the overarching principles laid out. On the baseline, I would say that's for some class of applications. For another class, you don't have that baseline and boy, it's much weaker. Sort of working out what are the underlying principles? What do you need to know about a method to say this is a good method or a bad method? And then you say, okay, now I have this very particular case. I'm growing trees in this forest and I want to know the other thing this raises is the permanent issue, and I'm still a little confused about the 10 years you put up, because I, I can see that you don't want to get into the very distant future. But should we then call it a 10-year certificate? or So that's one of the actually particular things that we'll be talking about at Palooza. What Klaus is referring to for the listener is that it's traditional in the existing markets to put a covenant on the land. If you're a farmer, you have some agricultural operation, and you're participating in soil carbon removal, and you're earning offsets credits for that. You're signing a contract that's committing you to maintain those practices that it sequestered the carbon dioxide in your land for up to, in some cases, 100 years. Whereas you're only actually going to be receiving credits in exchange for the actions that you took for at most, say, 20 years. So that's 80 years of actions that you're doing that you're not getting paid for. And we believe that that requirement is a huge barrier to entry that's preventing more participants from doing this sort of thing. So we've been talking with the folks at Colorado State University at Comet Farm, who will be at the conference tomorrow discussing these practices around soil carbon and what is the minimum time necessary that people need to be doing this to ensure that there are enough incentives in place for them in other cases that they'll just continue doing this regardless. When it comes to soil carbon, there's been this traditional sort of valley of death, which is a kind of term that comes out of finance capital where you get to a point in operating these practices three to five to seven years in or so. And if you can make it through it long enough, then you start seeing big enough ROI that it's worth it for you to continue doing this because you're actually producing more crops, better crops and earning a higher return than you would have otherwise with traditional plowing and tilling and so on. These are things to discuss and get feedback on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, you want me to do that right now well, <laughs> on the on the bot podcast. Well, I, I, I wanted would, to. Uh, it, I, I would argue this is very specific to this method because you yes. implicit you implicitly say after ten years the farmer either sees a benefit in it or not, and so if we triggered the farmer to get that first ten years, we did good things. But I could also be in a different situation where I can say I can assure you that I can keep this carbon there, but unfortunately I will to have to keep working on it indefinitely. And if you paid me for the first 10 years and then you tell me my baseline is now up there, I'll give up. 
and it'll all come back out, right? So how do we count that, right? So those are the questions which are now a little more generic. Mm -hmm. And yes, mm -hmm. in your particular example, you may actually have exactly accomplished what you wanted. So therefore, it's really worthwhile picking this out and then Actually, and I think you are doing that, and that's very positive, is you then make it public and transparent. So somebody can actually look at it and say, this is believable or this is not believable. Yeah. And I think another thing that might be helpful for the listener is that we think about these different methodologies by three different categories. So there's the ecological category, which is primarily what we're talking about. That's definitely where baselines are important because we're talking about things that are storing the carbon dioxide in uh, the earth somehow that are based on some sort of natural process. So that's soil carbon, that's planting trees, that's potentially blue carbon, growing kelp, that sort of thing. Then there are the industrial approaches. So that's direct air capture. That's using direct air capture CO2 as a manufacturing feedstock. That's also including like what you're talking about, injecting it into rock formations and mineralizing the CO2. And then there are hybrid approaches, which that could also sort of count as that sort of meld these two. And they require different approaches. To begin with, we're focusing on these ecological methods because they're tried and true. They've been used for a long time. People understand this. The data modeling and measuring has been going on for decades at this point. So it's a much simpler problem, relatively speaking, to come up with these verification methods that actually work. Your industrial use of carbon is another good example, right? If that car lasts 10 years, chances are it, those carbon panel doors it may end up in a waste incinerator, right? And then, then they're back in the air. Yeah. If, if you put a 10-year limit on it, you somehow need to, maybe I pay things in increments of 10 years. That's perfectly fine. For our part, it's important to acknowledge that it's impossible to 100% account for every single molecule of carbon dioxide or every atom of carbon that's going through this process. And just in the same way that like large retail stores just assume that there's going to be a certain amount of loss every year from either employees stealing or customers stealing product, they just build that into their budgets. They have insurance for that sort of thing. We're taking a similar approach. We're insuring the carbon removal certificates. So we're making sure that if it is found that for some reason there is leakage or the audits that show that the data recorded from the beginning show that there wasn't actually as much carbon removed as was previously stated, then we're going to back up that purchase. And we, we have different methods detailed in the paper on how we're going to do that. I think that's all very good. And I think you're to be congratulated on how you got on the way on that. I hear he's a tough one to get praise from. Would you agree, Christoph? <laughs> <laughs> I think it all it all depends. Um, <laughs> look, I mean, one carbon removal certificate is equivalent to one metric ton of carbon dioxide removed, plus or minus 10%. And so there's really kind of that range. And we like to think of things in terms of models that can allow us to assign probabilities. We can be sure X amount that... This much carbon is there, and that really allows for some of this dynamic baseline. But what I, what I think it comes down to is what we're building is good enough. And good enough means that we can get going, and we can then learn from what we're doing so that we can inform others, and we can all do all that much more of that activity. And that's kind of really what Reversa Palooza is about. Klaus, were there other pieces around the white paper that kind of leave you puzzled or excited, or you say, well, this, this is solving some problem that I think needs solving. I mean, obviously, we're talking about pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which we know is needed. So so there's that. Yeah. And the certificates, I 
understand, right? Then the the next question is the tokens, right? And one of the things which confused me reading your paper is you're saying the moment the certificate has been generated, it immediately becomes retired the moment you matched it with a token. I would have thought it's retired when somebody applies it to a particular emission. So I would have had it last a little longer. So, so it actually has already been applied. The certificates are created after they've been verified that the action has happened. So let's talk soil carbon. The farmer starts practicing these regenerative agriculture practices. They establish a baseline. After a period of time, they submit their data to one of our data aggregator partners like Comet Farm. And then that data is verified by an independent third-party verifier that by entering that data into our application now creates and issues carbon removal certificates that are owned by the supplier, the farmer who originally did that activity. Mm -hmm. Those enter the queue and are now available for sale to be purchased with the Nori token. The buyers who have these Nori tokens send the Nori token into the application and the ownership of the two swaps so that the Nori tokens, which are one-to-one, so however many tons and CRCs you're buying is how many tokens you're paying, the farmer receives those tokens and the buyer receives the carbon removal certificates. And those certificates are now made non-transferable. So they are owned by you. They are in your name. They'll show up on your account page on the Nori web app. And they can now be considered retired because they cannot be transferred anymore, which is a very different thing from the way that the current carbon markets work. Because these carbon markets have these offsets and credits being sold to oftentimes brokers or wholesalers who are then selling them to another party who then sell them off to another party and then sell them off to another party. And each time that that transaction happens, that's being counted as overall transaction volume. So when analysts look at the existing carbon markets, they're counting all of that volume every single time that's being sold as a sale of a carbon credit. But in reality, like one ton of CO2 could be counted multiple times. Sure, but you... That's why at the end of the chain, you have to retire. So the question I had is, I may not have an immediate need for it, but I know in three weeks from now, he will have the need. Now, you could deal with it in tokens. I get that. Yeah. But I could equally well say, I just purchased this certificate because it's available. And maybe I get 10 cents extra on the ton because... <laughs> Well, because he needs it a little later. Well, that's where the Nori token comes in. You can think of the token sort of like a gift card. It's already worth one CRC. And if you've already paid in dollars or Bitcoin or some other currency to acquire the Nori token, then the amount that you've paid is already done and set. But that means that if you had a compliance market, which would accept it, what are they accepting? Are they accepting the certificate or are they accepting the Okay. Well, two things to that. One is we're not interested in participating in compliance markets. We're trying to build a voluntary market. But if for some reason a compliance market wanted to or a compliance jurisdiction wanted to allow their regulated entities to purchase CRCs from within Nori and have that count towards some requirement that they have, that's totally fine. So they would count that based on when they purchase the CRCs. The Nori tokens are just a currency. So yes. they're just gift cards. So I would find it unlikely that if they were to write regulations that allowed them to use Nori, that they would count the Nori tokens. It would be the CRCs. Right. Because you retired it. You can't transfer them a second time. That's right. So it's up to those buyers. So say you're an energy supplier in California and you're allowed to buy a Nori CRCs in order to count against your emissions cap, then you would need to buy Nori tokens based on 
whatever your own needs are. And then when you have to comply, you buy the CRCs and then they're retired. Yes. And I think part of what is very exciting about building a market mechanism is we don't exactly know how it's going to play out. And we don't necessarily have to. The market can emerge in all sorts of creative ways. And as long as we're focused on, okay, let's make pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as easy as possible and as easy to verify and lowering those verification costs, the more market activity, the more carbon dioxide is being removed and then we're achieving our goals. And I do believe that there will be over-the-counter exchanges that might emerge around Nori as we do this successfully, where a buyer may not want to have to deal with cryptocurrency or going through certain hurdles where they can purchase Nori tokens, but there could be individuals or entities that are getting tokens for the sole purpose to give them buyers who are ready to pay for CRCs. That would be a good thing because then that means that more carbon is getting removed and paid for. Yeah, we've also discussed ways of maybe making it a little more e-commerce-y because cryptocurrency is, well, First of all, well, I don't know if I should ask you this on the air, Klaus. Do you own any cryptocurrency? No, I don't. You don't own any? Okay. <laughs> uh, Are you surprised, Ross? I, I wouldn't have been surprised if he had said he did. He's a crafty one, I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it isn't the most user-friendly. In fact, the front end, the thing that the end user like you or I would experience feeling with cryptocurrency is very unfriendly. In fact, if you ever had to explain it to uh, like any of your parents or anything, like sometimes it could be quite difficult. I mean, at best, you say, go to coinbase.com, make an account, and sign up and buy it. And that's the closest thing to thinking of it like a bank. That's it. Yeah. But that, that's pretty much all there is. That's pretty much it. So we'd like it to be, what if you could use a credit card or do something much more simple just through us, but also yeah, having over the counter type services or custodial services would be uh, quite an improvement, but we are not able to predict that. Part of it is a regulatory issue. Cryptocurrencies are so new and they function in a very odd way relative to the existing assets that regulators are used to. In some cases, they can be money. In some cases, they can be property. In some cases, they can be commodities. They can be securities. They can't be all of these things simultaneously, but they can be some of them simultaneously. And the regulators, at least in the United States, who oversee the search of different types of assets have all come out and declared it to be that type of asset, probably because that's the type of asset that they get to regulate. There needs to be some clarity given to us. There are issues around if we were to take a credit card uh, that somebody used that credit card and it in the background purchased the number of Nori tokens at the market rate that are necessary to buy the number of CRCs that they want to buy. Well, that introduces questions. Where are those tokens coming from? Is Nori holding a reserve in supply and are we selling them to them? Does that count as money transmission? And does that mean that we now need a money transmitters license in every single state in the country in order to let people do that? Do we need that in other countries? So all these questions exist right now and are somewhat dependent on the regulators deciding it. So we're the route that we're trying to take right now is only using the cryptocurrency because that's at least a clearer way so that we can be legally compliant. This is Paul and I's life too. This is <laughs> yes, just, this compliance issues are bread Every and butter for day. us. Yeah. Well, I believe that. I came around seeing you at Token ultimately as a, indeed a cryptocurrency, mm-hmm. but but you have a funny cryptocurrency which is pegged to a yeah. to a ton of carbon. Unlike the gold standard, you actually cannot give back that ton of carbon because you actually consumed it and it's retired. So you can't give it back. So you can't say, okay, anybody who wants to come back gets their carbon back. 
the analogy I would make, you have a currency pegged to a haircut, right? Uh, <laughs> you say the barbershop, you always pay one token and you get a haircut. And now, now you have the problem that you have to maintain your currency, right? And right? One of the concerns I have is think of countries which have pegged their currency against the dollar and suddenly saw a whole bunch of speculators trying to break that link. And the speculators very often have won in these discussions. So that's one right. of the concerns I see in these constructs. Yeah. I mean, this is our biggest concern around this too. So if we create a specified number of tokens and we issue them and if we create too many tokens, then that means that the price of the token is going to trade too low to reach some sort of market equilibrium. And if we don't create enough tokens, the price of it is going to be too high for it to reach some market equilibrium. And we've been working with an economist to try to create an agent-based simulation model, putting in as much data as we can possibly acquire around possible available supply, possible available demand to simulate different scenarios and try to come up with an estimated number of tokens and also considering different ways that that monetary supply might be adjusted over time because we won't get it right. That's just yes. not possible. So we need to have ways to adjust and adapt and have that be a self-reinforcing mechanism that works. You want yes. to have like M1 and M2. And <laughs> yes, but, but then, you have a, then you have a peg to a ton of carbon. And then I come around and I just made it easier to collect the ton of carbon. And suddenly your token is too expensive in the real world because you only need half a token to pay for what yesterday would cost you one token because right. my technology is cheaper. But that'd be so how do you adjust? That'd be good though. That's yeah, producer how, surplus. You would be, you'd kill all uh, your competitors. No, nobody. If you're a remover. Yeah. Is that, you, is that what you were saying? If you're a remover who has good technology? No, no. Oh, no. It, it penetrates suddenly into the market. I was stupid about it. I didn't capture it with IP. Uh, and so suddenly everybody is doing it. So suddenly you have a currency which has to be devalued because the, <laughs> in other words, if you buy cups of coffee or haircuts, your currency just suddenly got cut in half because I lowered the price of, <laughs> of a ton of CO2. The price that the token trades at is meant to reflect the value to the buyer of purchasing one ton of CO2 removed. It's not related to the cost of it. And in fact, we want that cost of removing the CO2 to go yeah, down but, over but, time so but, that the but, margins increase. Yeah, but isn't that what will happen? If you weren't in the middle and somehow we got a good market going and I give you the somehow and you are helping, you are helping to create that market. But there is a demand for carbon reduction, whether it's voluntary or driven by compliance, and there's a supply of them, right? And if you make the price high enough, the supply will be very large, but the demand will be very small. And so somehow in the middle, the two will meet. And what I'm sitting now on a whole stash full of tokens and he over there managed to drop the price of a ton of carbon in half in dollars not in tokens and so the exchange rate between the token and the dollar has to be suddenly cut in half because you are pegged to the ton of carbon you do like nixon going off the gold standard finally yeah you're going to say we're not going to be on the carbon standard any longer <laughs> I've never, yeah. <laughs> this is the first time this has come up. We have long been interested in monetary economics and macroeconomics. And what, what do you think about that? It doesn't seem like it would be a terrible 
thing. Well, unless you were holding it. So in this situation, we're talking about, okay, there's some sort of equilibrium. There's for some period of time, there's been a maintained supply and a relatively maintained amount of demand so that the queue of CRCs available is just constantly filtering through. And you're concerned about if the price of the token goes up too high, high enough that the demand drops because it's too expensive for new entrants who don't own the token already to purchase these CRCs. So the queue of supply starts to build up and become bigger, which then potentially drives demand down even more, which now makes it I feel well, like that's well, still actually, self-reinforcing. No, I actually added a technological wrinkle in. So I actually own a lot of tokens, hypothetically. There are a lot of people because you need to have a lot of tokens floating around because there is right. a natural flow of tokens from those who want to buy certificates yeah. to those who hold certificates. Right. And somehow that supply has to come back. So there has to be a real currency which pays for other things running around in the background. So I'm holding... I have a bank account of my tokens. Now somebody invents a new way of collecting CO2 from the air, which costs half of what it did last week. And I make it now dramatic and say it all happens over a week, right? I now see a horrible inflation on my bank account because yesterday my token <laughs> paid for a ton of CO2. Today it pays for a ton of CO2, but the actual cost behind it is much lower. Well, but that's irrelevant. I mean, like, yeah, but we, if I, if I, see, I now I see, buy a milkshake on the other side or no, no, the concept of value based pricing is really important to understand here. So let me give an example. If you think about the problem of trying to deal with a clogged drain at home, you have several different options for how to deal with that. You could go to Home Depot and you could buy a bottle of Drano or Liquid Plumber, or you could go and you could buy one of those long snake things that have teeth coming out the side. And you could do either one and you could take both of those home and they would both solve your problem by removing the chunk of hair that's stuck in the drain. The Drano is significantly more expensive to manufacture than that just simple injection molded plastic that is this long snaky thing. But if the manufacturers of the snake thing are smart, they'll price it similarly to what Drano is being priced at in the market because it's providing the same value to the customer. The customers are buying things based on how much they value the utility of that object. Yeah, and that's and a fundamentally uncompetitive world, right? Because if there were another snake producer, he said, well, I can be cheap than the other two and I can't no, that, the market. It's the opposite. It's a more competitive world because it's constantly forcing different uh, oh, carbon yeah. dioxide removers to compete with each other to try to reduce their costs because if the value of the token stays the same or goes up and their cost goes down, their profit margins increase. Well, but it used to be that if you really are competitive, the price comes down, right? So you're, yeah, you're you, saying you're, at, the, at the market level. Well, but there's also going to be a weird sort of ramp up period in this because right now the demand for carbon removal certificates isn't really clearly indicated in any sort of and, market price and anywhere. That, that's why I, I grant you you're, you're being a big, big step forward, mm-hmm. right? Because you are creating that market. I, I have no trouble with that. I'm just, I'm looking well, a few yeah, years further. I, I, I think it's, uh, and, I think it's very I, unrealistic I, to assume that the, value of the token is just going to continue going up forever and never reach some sort of maximum ceiling. I think it's very likely that it will reach some sort of maximum ceiling and then perhaps decline over time. But it should reflect where the supply and demand curves meet. And that demand level right now is sort of unrecognized. Right. And you are being the price finder, right? right? But I'm arguing you're finding the price two different ways. They may or may not match. I'm positing right now that your currency, because you pegged it to the carbon, is 
subject to changes in its value compared to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's true. Because the technology underlying the carbon removal is changing over time. Right. Right. And if if that technology gets better and better and the market is reasonably competitive, then you will see more and more entries and therefore this will become cheaper. And now, therefore, your currency in terms of buying cups of coffee will be coming down, which is what it should do. Because, because if I had been sitting on a, on a stash of those tokens, I'd be very unhappy. <laughs> because he just over there. The, welcome, they're, welcome they're, to our life class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is this is cryptocurrency, and there and there are ways that market participants deal with this. So, in traditional commodity markets, you have groups of people that are known as speculators, and you have groups of people who are known as hedgers. And speculators are simply put, people who believe that the price of the commodity is going to go up over some period of time, and hedgers are people who think that the price of the commodity is going to go down. The actions of these two is where they meet in the middle is the price that gets set. And so, if you are a holder of a large number of tokens and you're seeing that the price is going down, well, then you make a short bet in the market and you can still profit off of that. So there's still ways for uh, people to have the right incentives to do this. That still allows us to set a market-driven price that doesn't crash the market. In this part of your white paper, I see you as creating a currency, a cryptocurrency, which runs its own market, which happens to be pegged to the ton of carbon. On the other part of the story, I saw you as creating certificates of carbon removal and your life revolves around that. And then the hope is that the cryptocurrency speculation, which is independent of the peg to the carbon, is not not running the show. Because if it is, then some days you are overpricing the ton of carbon and some other day you are underpricing. Yeah. And you have the, you that's have actually that exchange. I mean, that's actually totally acceptable. That's how all of the major markets work for any sort of commodity, whether it's wheat or oil or pork bellies. Like that's, this is already a thing that functions in markets all across the world today. What derivatives markets? Yeah. Oh yeah. You have to have that too, because if you hold something, you're essentially long on it, right? So you just mm-hmm. you just have to make that bet. You need speculators, yeah. Do you guys still want to fight over Drano? Field <laughs> <laughs> trip to Home Depot? No, I think we're fine about that. Yeah. <laughs> Get into a long debate about value pricing. We like talking to you because the concerns are often not the same ones that we hear elsewhere. They're always uh, coming at us from a, a new angle. <laughs> that's almost. definitely true. Well, that's my yeah, job, yeah. right? I'm, yeah. I'm helping yeah. you here. I'm trying to give you some <laughs> advice. And so my, my job is to come up with something you haven't thought about. If I just say, this is what you always talk about, well, then I'm not doing my job, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. We the, don't want a yes man. And be, the best ideas come out of creative tension. We have a a number of hedges built into the team, too, where people come at things from very different perspectives. And while some people might think that is a weakness, we we tend to like it. Because if you all think the same way, then you make all the same mistakes. So it's good to have that. You go over the cliff in lockstep. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's call it here. We have to start getting to the hotel, getting Reversapalooza ready. It's great. And remember, if you are a fan, if you're not a fan, please ignore the following. But if you are... Please give us a great review and uh, rank us highly on your podcast app. We would really appreciate that. Thanks for listening and being a fan. I want to add one more thing, which is that we're planning to record the talks and panel discussions that happen at Reverse Opalooza. So we'll have those available up on the website on nori.com shortly after the conference. So we're not trying to hide this from you guys. It will we'll make it all public. There's 
a couple of videos that are coming out here soon. Yes. Additionally, we have a lot of content coming. It's great. Well, thanks, uh, Klaus. We should just have you on the podcast every few months and, and catch <laughs> up. I'd be happy to come back. <laughs> it's fun to talk purely about Nori for an episode. I don't, I don't think that really happens nearly enough on this show. But uh, thanks for being here. Okay.